Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Today in our first feature, Enrique Sanz from Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about free solar energy systems. And our second feature, Sanz talks about steel mill pollution data. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. In 2018, there were about 5 million electric cars on the road globally. It sounds like a large number, but with well over a billion cars worldwide, electric vehicles are still only a small percentage. One barrier to people making the switch from conventional cars is cost. Electric vehicle prices generally remain high, mainly because batteries are still expensive. But Ellen Hughes Cromwick, senior economist at the University of Michigan Energy Institute, says that that's changing. They are observing that many manufacturers are driving that cost lower, she says. They expect that in the next three to five years, that battery cost will be very competitive. She says that by 2025, an electric car will likely cost the same as a comparable gas-powered one. That will make them more accessible to consumers, even without financial incentives, which have already brought down the price of electric vehicles in many countries. So as battery technology continues to evolve, more electric cars are likely to hit the road. Over the past decade, a surge of lithium-ion battery production has led to an 85% decline in prices, making electric vehicles and energy storage commercially viable for the first time in history. As the immediacy of the climate crisis becomes ever more apparent, batteries hold the key to transitioning to a renewable-fueled world. Solar and wind are playing a greater role in power generation, but without effective energy storage techniques, natural gas and coal are needed for times when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. Thus, large-scale storage is a key if society is to shift away from a world dependent on fossil fuel. It looks as if firefighters in Australia have succeeded in saving a secret grove of prehistoric trees belonging to a species that dates back to the time of the dinosaurs. Wollamy pines once grew widely across Australia millions of years ago, the Washington Post reported, but now less than 200 remain in the wild in a national park 100 miles northwest of Sydney. The Wollamy pine was known only through fossil records until 1994 when a cliff climber was rappelling into a gorge. He was puzzled by the trees and took samples of bark and branches out. His discovery, baffling scientist. An expedition was quickly mounted and trees were identified. The location is in a temperate rainforest wilderness area of the Wollamy National Park in New South Wales in a remote series of narrow, steep-sided sandstone gorges. 
the genus is named after this national park. In both botanical and popular literature, the tree has been almost universally referred to as the Wolomi pine, although it is not a true pine. The oldest fossil of the Wolomi tree has been dated to 200 million years ago. The Wolomi pine is classified as critically endangered. A recovery plan has been drawn up outlining strategies for the management of this fragile population. The overall objective is to ensure that this species remains viable in the long term. The fires basically destroyed everything above the narrow gorge where the trees are located. The trees were saved because of the firefighters' determination and because there was an irrigation system for the trees that was installed some years ago. An advisory panel for the Interior Department has proposed privatizing national park campgrounds. The Made in America Outdoor Recreation Advisory Committee was the brainchild of the ethically challenged former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke in 2017 and is composed of executives from the recreational vehicle and hospitality industries and companies with direct business ties to the National Park Service. The proposal would permit commercial services such as Wi-Fi and food trucks on campgrounds. Critics say the plan would raise fees and increase crowding and noise pollution. As Outside Magazine put it, the plan, quote, represents yet another step toward public lands privatization and an attempt to enrich the current administration's cronies, unquote. The plan includes having private companies operate campgrounds. It also proposes adjusting campground prices to reflect inflation and the market, that is, higher priced private campgrounds outside park boundaries. The Park Service would also discontinue discounted senior citizen camping fees during peak seasons. The plan also calls for bypassing environmental impact reviews for campground expansion and development. That is consistent with the Trump administration's attempts to weaken the National Environmental Policy Act, which forces federal agencies to consider the environmental impact of projects. Cement is a remarkable building material. It's cheap, durable, and readily available. However, its production is a leading source of carbon dioxide emissions, coughing up nearly three gigatons of emissions every year, as Advanced Science News reported. While researchers have sought alternative means of production that would make building materials more eco-friendly, they have been unable to recreate cement's durability. But now a team of researchers has created concrete that is alive and can reproduce and even capture carbon, according to the New York Times. The research team from the University of Colorado at Boulder created an entirely new material with minerals that are deposited from cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria are common microbes that capture energy through photosynthesis. That process means the plants will absorb carbon dioxide, which is the opposite of the industry standard concrete, which spews massive quantities of carbon dioxide when limestone is heated to make calcium oxide a primary component of concrete. A trade-off exists between biological viability and mechanical performance of the new formulation because gelatin is used, along with bacteria and sand grains. Gelatin reaches its maximal strength when dehydrated, but the bacteria require humidity to function. A balance between these two factors was required for this class of living building material. 
but the researchers believe that the process could be optimized by exploring the use of additives to enhance bacterial tolerance to dry conditions. Although this technology is still in its infancy and is not intended to replace concrete completely, it represents a new frontier in material manufacturing, a new class of responsive materials in which structural function is complemented by biological functions. Chelsea Heveron, a former postdoc with the group, now an engineer at Montana State University, said, quote, The first time we made a big structure using this system, we didn't know if it was going to work, scaling up from this little itty-bitty thing to this big brick. It was the first time we had the scale we were envisioning, and that was really exciting, unquote. The Indianapolis Business Journal reports that Indiana utilities would be prevented from shutting down coal-fired plants under a new bill. A state lawmaker wants to prevent Indiana utilities from retiring coal-fired power plants early in favor of newer, cleaner technology unless they can prove it's required by a federal mandate or otherwise in the public interest. The move comes as several large Indiana utilities are planning to shut down thousands of megawatts of coal-fired generating capacity in favor of cleaner or cheaper fuel sources. State Representative Ed Soliday, Republican from Valparaiso, introduced a bill that says public utilities may not retire, sell, transfer, or terminate a lease on an electricity generating plant without getting permission from state regulators. Several environmental groups and consumer advocates said the bill seems designed to prop up the coal industry, which is struggling as utilities shift to other fuel sources. U.S. coal consumption is now at its lowest point in 40 years, and at least six major coal companies have gone bankrupt since 2013. Coal-fired power plants have been hit hard by rising maintenance costs, including pollution controls. At the same time, the costs of solar and wind power have fallen as the technology has improved and are now cost competitive with coal. Natural gas, meanwhile, is beating coal as a fuel source in price, thanks to the shale drilling boom. In 2010, Indiana had 26 active coal-burning power units. By 2016, it had just 13, and now that number is on track to decrease by at least another 10 by 2028. But coal still accounted for more than 60% of the state's electricity generation in 2018. Governor Eric Holcomb delivered his State of the State Address January 14th. In this yearly speech, the state's chief executive touts victories and successes in the past year and talks about challenges Hoosiers will face now and in the future. This is a summary of the governor's comments about some environmental issues as reported in the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Overall, air quality in the United States has improved since the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970, but that trend may no longer apply to Indiana. Nationwide, levels of the six most common toxic air pollutants and air toxins have decreased due to the Clean Air Act regulations by multiple presidential administrations and, in some cases, the introduction of stricter standards. Federal data indicates that air pollution in some Indiana counties has worsened since 2015. Ozone pollution increased in nearly all monitored cities and in more than half of monitored Indiana counties between 2015 and 2018. 
That decrease in air quality can lead to reduced lung function, respiratory infections, and many other cardiovascular and respiratory problems, including premature death. Water quality is also on the decline. According to IDEM report, the number of Indiana waterways the state considers impaired has doubled over the last decade. In 2010, the state reported 3,100 total water body impairments. Nearly a decade later, that number jumped to 6,700. IDEM also reported that the number of streams contaminated with E. coli bacteria, PCBs, and ammonia has increased greatly. According to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, the state has nearly 5 million acres of forest land, an increase of about 1.2% since 2012. The state forest constitutes less than 1% of the total forested acres. Governor Holcomb said he was matching the Central Indiana Land Trust goal to plant 1 million trees by ordering DNR to plant 1 million more trees in the next five years. The DNR said, quote, we applaud this investment and join him in the vision of increasing Indiana's forested land. Not only will these initiatives sequester carbon, helping to mitigate the effects of climate change, planting trees also help solve multiple issues, from habitat fragmentation to downstream flooding, all while making sure that tomorrow's children have lovely forested areas to explore." Unquote. Refugees fleeing the impending effects of the climate crisis cannot be forced to return home, according to a new decision by the United Nations Human Rights Committee, as CNN reported. The new decision could open up a massive wave of legal claims by displaced people around the world. The first-of-its-kind ruling opens the door for a new kind of legal claim to future protections for people whose lives and health are threatened by a warming planet and sea level rise, according to legal experts. The ruling is expected to have profound consequences as the impacts of climate crisis are predicted to displace tens of millions of people. The UN Human Rights Committee ruling started from the case of Leon Tiota, who applied for refugee protection from New Zealand, claiming that his life was at risk in his home country of Kiribati, which is predicted to be one of the first countries lost due to sea level rise. Kiribati is an equatorial island nation in the middle of the Pacific that has slightly over 300 square miles of land and roughly 110,000 people. The committee heard Teyote's claim that his home island of South Tarawa had increased in population by nearly 90 times from 1947 to the present day. That explosion in population, plus some of the neighboring islands going underwater, has led to violence and social tensions. Teyota claimed that a shortage of fresh water and difficulty growing crops because of the salinity of the water posed as threat to him and his family. Further, he argued that because the island is predicted to be uninhabitable in 10 to 15 years, his life was in danger if he remained there. The Pentagon some years ago predicted this type of problem and deemed the violence it might bring as a major threat to world peace. And now for our first feature, we will hear Enrique Sanz from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about free solar energy systems. Solar power is on the rise across the nation and Indiana is not immune to that trend. The state is climbing the ranks for solar energy. In 2018, we ranked 27th in the nation. Last year, 23rd. There's a lot of work to do. 
One nonprofit organization is looking for a few homeowners interested in making the switch to solar without spending a dime. The nonprofit national organization Solar United Neighbors and the city of Indianapolis have teamed up to find 20 low and middle income homeowners willing to install a solar energy system on their roof, but unable to do so because of the cost. The pilot project uses grant funding to provide the solar and energy efficiency upgrades for free for up to 20 Indianapolis homeowners at or below 80% of the area median income, which comes to about $63,900 a year for a family of four. This is Zach Schalk, Indiana Program Director for Solar United Neighbors. We really want to make sure that the program is a step in a more inclusive and equitable direction for our uh, clean energy transition. You know, right now, folks who are able to invest in solar can install solar on the roofs for the most part, but that leaves a lot of people behind who can't afford to make that investment on their own. So, you know, we think that solar energy should be able to benefit not just folks who have a lot of money to invest in a system. So this, this program is, is a positive step in, in that more equitable and just direction. In addition to income requirements, homeowners will also be subject to a roof review that will be carried out by the company performing the solar installation. Schalk said that during the review, installers will assess the structural integrity of the homeowner's roof and whether it is large enough for solar installation. And this will allow them to fully own the system, even though the funding is coming from a grant. They'll be able to benefit, if they have any kind of federal tax obligations, they'll be able to benefit from the 26% federal investment tax credit. They'll also benefit from increased property value and no increase in taxes thanks to the, the state's renewable energy property tax exclusion. But most importantly, they'll be able to save big bucks on their electric bill from day one. As soon as the system goes online, they will start seeing savings on their monthly electric bill. And we'll be, uh, this program, they'll be eligible for a system that could cover up to 100% of their annual electric costs. And so they could be seeing as much as, you know, 100% of savings on their electric bill. So their bill will go down to just a fixed charge which for these customers will be anywhere between around $10. Besides help for lower income residents, Solar United Neighbors also helps Hoosiers band together to purchase solar power systems in bulk at a lower price than they would if they tried to purchase them independently. The number of solar power cooperatives like these is making a difference in bringing down prices and increasing solar availability throughout the state of Indiana. Although solar power only makes up about 0.42% of the state's electricity, Prices for solar power systems and components have decreased by 36% over the last five years. The state of Indiana is climbing the ranks when it comes to solar power. In 2018, the Solar Energy Industries Association ranked the state 27th for solar power installations. The state's ranking rose to 23rd best in 2019. The state also ranks 11th best for solar power growth projections over the next five years. Hoosiers can register for the pilot project or for the information sessions at the organization's website. We'll have a link on our website, indianaenvironmentalreporter.org. Here, Enrique Sanz from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about steel mill pollution data. It was established in 1964, and it's been churning out about 5 million tons of steel products every year. Products that are used in cars, appliances, bridges, and buildings. It's had more than one owner, but the steel mill at Burns Harbor makes what we need, but at what cost? Last year, Luxembourg-based ArcelorMittal, the company that currently owns the steel mill at Burns Harbor, admitted to inadvertently releasing excess levels of toxic cyanide and ammonia into the Little Calumet River. Now, the company is facing an investigation into the validity of water samples it submitted to the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. 
In a recently released inspection report for the ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor facility near Gary, IDEM found several violations during three inspections in November. One of the violations was ArcelorMittal's possibly illegal practice of reanalyzing and replacing water discharge samples when the initial sample analysis found chemical or substance levels beyond what is allowed by state and federal permits. The company flat out denies manipulating test data and stands by its testing practices. This is what the company said in a written statement, quote, ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor does not manipulate data. We use certified independent laboratories to analyze samples and we report the data, including any corrected data from the labs to the regulatory agencies consistent with industry and laboratory standards. ArcelorMittal has a track record of providing accurate sampling data to the agencies." End quote. In August of last year, IDEM began investigating a chemical release after receiving complaints of dead and distressed fish in the east arm of the Little Calumet River. ArcelorMittal contacted IDEM days after the spill and notified the agency that it had violated its daily maximum limit for total cyanide. The company said the release of elevated levels of ammonia and cyanide was due to a failure in the blast furnace water recirculation system. ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor was instructed by IDEM to conduct daily 24-hour composite sampling of the water discharged by Outfall 002 where water from the facility's coke plant, sinter plant, blast furnaces, and other essential areas are discharged. The company was required to test for unauthorized discharges of ammonia, nitrogen, cyanide, and several other chemicals and substances. The company collected water samples and sent them out to independent laboratories for testing. According to IDEM, sampling deficiencies were found in data submitted by the company in the months after the chemical release in August. This is what IDEM said in its report. ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor has established a practice of reanalyzing samples in cases in which initial sample analysis, which passes all quality assurance quality control checks, indicates a permit effluent limit exceedance, and using the results of the reanalysis to recalculate or replace results, including those already reported to IDEM. In short, IDEM said ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor would retest samples that showed violations until it got acceptable results, then use the samples to recalculate effluent averages or even replace unfavorable results. Reanalyzing a sample is a violation of the Clean Water Act's National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, which regulates the amount of pollutants that steel mills and other point sources can discharge into U.S. waters. NPDES allows point sources to collect samples for testing over the course of the day and average the results. This gives point sources leeway to fall under the daily maximum effluent limits for pollutants regulated in the facility's permit. IDEM said NDPES rules do not allow companies seeking a permit to reanalyze valid analytical results and use that result in place of the initial result. Item said ArcelorMittal's sampling data puts into question the validity of the company's self-reported data. This is another quote from the report. The practice undermines the integrity of compliant results that are reported based upon one analysis of a given sample. If ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor maintains that it cannot credibly report non-compliant results based upon one analysis of a given sample that passes all quality assurance quality control checks, then IDEM cannot feel confident in compliant results reported by ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor that are based on one analysis of a given sample that passes all quality assurance quality control checks. ArcelorMittal's self-monitoring program is either capable of generating valid results based upon one analysis of a given sample, or it is not. On January 2nd, IDEM asked Microbac, one of the companies used by ArcelorMittal, to test water samples to provide more details about the lab data and calculations used to provide analytical results and full details about samples deemed false positives, including how the deduction was made. The report was forwarded to IDEM's Office of Water Quality Enforcement section. In October, the Indiana Environmental Reporter found that the company submitted non-compliance reports days or weeks after the violations first occurred. 
In some instances, the company initially reported effluence violations that were slightly above permitted limits, only to revise the submitted report weeks later with a much higher monitored value. The Chicago-based Environmental Law and Policy Center and Indiana's Hoosier Environmental Council filed a lawsuit against ArcelorMittal Burns Harbor LLC and its parent company, ArcelorMittal USA, alleging Clean Water Act violations. The groups say the companies repeatedly violated federal permit effluent limits and narrative water quality standards, then repeatedly violated reporting requirements. The groups say they can prove ArcelorMittal exceedances as far back as 2015 and are seeking a permanent injunction to stop the company from discharging pollutants into the Little Calumet River and Lake Michigan, and to come fully in compliance with the requirements of the Clean Water Act. The groups want the court to order ArcelorMittal to pay for the cost of litigation and impose civil penalties for each violation until the company achieves full compliance or until the lawsuit is resolved. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. Enjoy a fire tower hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, January 25th from 1 to 2 p.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn and hike your way to the restored fire tower. You will have access to the cabin atop the fire tower. Participate in a gourd birdhouse program at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 25th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center to paint a small round gourd that can be used as a birdhouse. Reserve your spot by contacting Sherry at sbelt at dnr.in.gov or call 812-849-3534. There will be a Bald Eagle driving tour on Sunday, January 26th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Lake Monroe. The tour will include six outdoor shoreline stops using spotting scopes. Advanced registration is required by calling 812-837-9546. The Lunch with Nature series will take place on Monday, January 27th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. Join the group to learn about mosses and their fascinating ecology. Bring a sack lunch to enjoy during the presentation. You must register in advance at jvance at dnr.in.gov. The Winter Hike Series continues at Brown County State Park on Saturday, February 1st from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
This is the annual winter dog hike, which is a scavenger hunt style program that will allow you and your four-legged friend to journey along the trails in the park while looking for clues. Registration is not required. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's features were produced by IER reporter Enrique Sanz. Me, myself, and I, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green edited it. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. And this is Eco Report.